Welcome to episode 196 of The Digital Life, a show about our insights into the future of design and technology. I'm your host, John Follett, and with me is founder and co-host, Dirk Niemeyer. Greetings, listeners. On this episode of The Digital Life, we're going to discuss biomimicry and nature-inspired design. We've touched on the subject a few years ago on the podcast on our bio-inspired episode, but the field is really exploding and it fits well with our general theme on the show of understanding the intersection of design and the sciences. So there have been a number of really interesting uh, developments in biomimicry. Let's let's start uh, with a really uh, sort of simple but uh, uh, interesting one from Ford Motor Company. Uh, they have a new eco-friendly um, car that's going to be coming out in 2018, I believe. And they use some bio-inspired design to create a super strong um, uh, support in the back of their uh, uh, in the back of the trunk of this vehicle, and it can hold like 700 pounds on it. But it's uh, uh, very lightweight. I think the, the the panel weighs six pounds itself. And part of the reason it's so strong is it imitates the honeycomb pattern, uh, you know, created by by bees in their yeah. um, in their nests. And so it's just one example of how uh, engineering and nature and design are uh, really intersecting, especially in uh, materials and. Uh, uh, material science uh, and creating things that you know I I assume you know next year people will be buying this uh, Ford EcoSport and uh, be be happy about having a super strong super light panel in the back uh, uh, for carrying cargo so so that's just one example um, another one that that I kind of like is uh, uh, there's a uh, wind turbine company called Whale Power. Uh, out of Toronto, Canada, and they've imitated the uh, the shape of the fins on the humpback whale uh, to create a better uh, a better fin for their wind turbines. So mm-hmm. apparently, humpback whales have uh, uh, incredible lift uh, when when it comes to their uh, uh, their fins. Uh, obviously, you're moving along a, a whale, so you're going to need <laughs> some some lift there. Uh, and the engineers. Over at uh, Whale Power in in Canada, you know, imitated those bumps that that are um, uh, common on the on the humpback whale fin to create these wind turbines that that operate uh, that much more efficiently and effectively. Boy, they're all in on that design, aren't they, John? Like they're a real one trick pony. If they <laughs> well, decide that uh, llama fur <laughs> is the better, you know, whale power is going right. to be a little bit of trouble, isn't it? Yeah, uh, maybe they're. Uh, Going to branch out into other whale-inspired products. Uh, we can only we can only hope. Indeed. Uh, but this is uh, you know both of these and 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 there are there are other examples that we can talk about uh, during the length of the show. But I mean these these examples are I think important because it it does show that uh, number one that uh, uh, the evolutionary um, aspects of nature you know they've tested out different kinds of materials over time. Different, different organisms have uh, uh, really well-refined ways of, of dealing with problems that humans can, can imitate. Um, and, and I think sometimes when we consider the, uh, you know, our relationship with the environment 
or uh, uh, with the Earth, with the planet, um, it's it's sort of one-sided. It's okay. We're going to protect the planet, and <laughs> we're you know we're abusing it. It's it, the planet is being acted upon um, by human beings. In, in this case, we're really learning something about engineering from you know from the natural world. Uh, and and I think there's a strong case to be made for um, for protecting uh, different species and um, uh, the environment generally because we don't know what problems nature has already solved and and how uh, those elements might be able to Im- Im- improve uh, uh, the human condition right so so uh, being destructive in our practices. Uh, is going to be detrimental to us in the long term, not just because we're um, destroying our, our environment, but also because we're eliminating possible repositories of knowledge that we don't even know are there. Right. Um, so, so I think that's a strong reason uh, to appreciate, um, uh, you know, engineering in nature. Um, and and like I said, it's it's sort of at the very beginnings of this uh, this field. Uh, insofar, you know, in a modern context, certainly biomimicry has uh, been with with human beings throughout our history. But but this is really a much more refined approach, uh, um, and and we can uh, be very specific and very optimized about how we use the inspiration that we get from nature. Now um, we can we can imitate to a very fine level uh, now. So. So, Dirk, when when you think about these advances and our general theme of design intersecting with science, you know what what are your what are your uh, impressions on this? Yeah, you know um, when when you brought up biomimicry as, as something to talk about this week, I was a little underwhelmed from the standpoint that um, it's clearly on trend. I mean, you know, there is a lot of noise about it, but um, from the design side as opposed to the engineering side, you know, I'm an older guy, so. The design heroes that I was brought up, you know, that I was sort of inculcated into design to learn about are, are people like uh, Buckminster Fuller, Le Corbusier, uh, the Eameses. And um, knowing their work um, and their philosophy of work very well, um, the, the, the way that their design reflected, was inspired by, or as modernists, was in intentional contradiction to the forms of nature was core to everything that they did. It was like that was that was that was um, as they think about the context of creating design, the juxtaposition to nature um, from from an aesthetic and functional perspective was right top of mind for those kind of um, you know now long deceased paragons of design. So the whole biomimicry um, trend, you know, the first thing I'm just like, well, duh, like. In design, we kind of grok that. I guess maybe it's engineering that's kind of getting on, getting on the bandwagon, so to speak, and and bridging the gap um, between you know um, machines and artificial creation outside the context of nature as a uh, a sort of a, a driving touch point of input and uh, possible solution. Um, now it's becoming more core and more mainstream. So. Um, yeah, maybe it's just more of, you know, the mainstreaming of things that in, in the vanguard of creation for, for, you know, a century now, at least, and probably more, you know, nature has been part of it. And thinking about nature in those ways has been part of it. 
So, I mean, maybe what's remarkable and maybe what I'm not giving enough consideration to is the degree to which that's jumped over to the, the engineering side. Yeah, and I, I think there are a number of uh, technologies that are uh, sort of converging right now that make uh, sort of uh, increased uh, biomimicry sort of part of um, a part of the vocabulary now for, for engineering in a, in a way that that you know maybe it didn't before. And one of those is is uh, gene editing, right, uh, and uh, uh, synthetic biology, right. So. So there's the, the possibility that you can uh, create a uh, a material that might actually be uh, manufactured by some you know slightly altered organism, right? Mm-hmm. So, uh, for for instance, I, I know of uh, one technique for creating biodegradable plastics is you know by uh, um, by altering the uh, uh, the genetic makeup of of certain bacteria, so that they they generate this this plastic rather than um, you know other byproducts. Uh, you know, just just one example, or the use of of um, uh, silk and uh, silkworms to create you know ultra strong fibers. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so I think our knowledge of um, sort of precision type engineering, uh, um, you know, bio uh, inspired. Uh, alterations to, uh, to to materials, and then and then also the um, the 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 total package coming together. I think is providing a lot more avenues for uh, for biomimicry than we might have uh, had in the past. So, so basically, the scientific acceleration of the last twenty years is just supercharging the engineering at the same time. That's a good take, John. Yeah, I, th- I think so. I mean, I'm not a, uh, a material scientist, much as I, uh, you know, might might enjoy Play talking about it. Yeah, right. Uh, two other examples that that I thought were were pretty interesting uh, uh, developments. There's a uh, uh, a bullet train design that is based on on the beak of the kingfisher bird. Uh, and it's enabled the the bullet trains going through uh, tunnels with with a standard design create basically a shock wave a a tunnel boom, um, which can actually damage the tunnel because they're they're traveling so fast and the boom is is so loud. Interesting. Uh, so so the 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 beak design of this kingfisher bird uh, enables it to dive into water with minimal splashing. Um, and so the engineers of this particular bullet train drew uh, inspiration from from this beak design for the basically the beak of the train, um, and lo and behold, no no tunnel boom uh, uh, with this new with this new model of bullet train. Um, and and then the last uh, uh, example that I wanted to give was uh, this idea of living buildings, right? So so buildings that. Uh, mimic the environment that they're built on. So uh, in Seattle, for instance, there's uh, ground cover that absorbs a certain amount of moisture throughout the year. And when you build a building on it, you no longer have that ability to, uh, to yeah. absorb moisture. So, so uh, engineers and architects are coming up with different ways for um, uh, creating surfaces that uh, absorb moisture uh, rather than let it run off and you know 
potentially detrimental to uh, um, you know the surrounding area. Sure. So 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 these these are just uh, uh, two more areas where we can see um, the considerations for uh, for design are are really becoming more holistic and. Um, uh, they're they're considering the 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 total ecosystem, not just um, you know what what uh, the human beings are, are are necessarily using. So so I find that to be a a, a good development. Yeah, it, I mean, it feels like though it's it's just more the infusion of science. Going back to your earlier point, because if we think about architecture, you know, architecture, and, you know, I'm thinking of of sort of you know South American, Central American from again, you know, mid to late 20th century was super mindful of um, becoming one with the environment and, and in, in very interesting ways of uh, blending in and enhancing the nature um, as opposed to being its own, like I'm a giant glass building standing 100 stories in the air. So it feels like the difference is just in the scientific understanding of um you know, hey, the fact that this building exists has these negative repercussions, and we know how to use materials in a way to address those negative repercussions. Let's just let's just do it. So I think the intent um, has been has been there for a long time, and has um, ha- has manifested in some very very beautiful solutions. But now it's moving beyond beauty and into into true um, function. Talking about function as you know how the things that we create. Um, interact with their natural environments. Yeah, that's 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 a good point. I think you know one one of the other elements that you know I I'd, I'd like to consider in this conversation is just this idea that scientific uh, input into design is is only increasing, right? So it it seems now that uh, being an architect, being you know. Uh, a materials designer uh, being um, uh, from the design realm, but with your your feet in um, uh, production, really requires you to understand more about the sciences. Perhaps um, you know that that was you know more of the case with the you know architecture side of things. They've always known uh, about material science, but I, I can see this creeping into other design disciplines. Um, I can see that um, design is continuing to specialize and that uh, the intersection of design and science is is starting to take shape. It's still somewhat early, of course, but there's no doubt that uh, designers um, and digital ones, too, are going to, you know, need to start considering this because, um, you know, the digitization of of design forms, uh, especially, you know, with all the abilities we have with 3D printers now and additive fabrication, it's only going to be a, you know, a short step from where we are now to, you know, designing digital versions of, of things that are going to be uh, be uh, printed, right? So so it's coming for, for the digital side of things, too. Dirk, I know this is a big a big theme of yours, uh, understanding uh, how how science and design come together. Yeah, I think it's interesting that this is happening at the same time that the problems of of global warming are leading to uh, a number of doomsday scenarios around significantly less species on the planet, um, different habitats 
for other species and other parts of nature disappearing and and being destroyed. It's like just as we're learning to integrate with and resonate with the larger environment in which we inhabit, we're in the process of destroying it in some irrevocable ways. Um, so there's, you know, there's a, a tragedy to it um, that we're we're making these great strides um, in in these beautiful ways um, at, at the same time that we're uh, making it so in the future we won't be able to do that because the uh, the environment as as it was uh, won't won't exist due to our our negligence or uh, you know hopefully some of these uh, you know some of these designs might might help us either. Uh, maintain or or reverse some of these trends that we've uh, that we've started. Uh, otherwise, we're all going to be designing you know cities for living underwater. I'm afraid. Yeah, although you know, I have a little bit of hope because um, about ten years ago, I wrote an article and I said, "Look, I'm I'm just an ignorant rube," but I hear all these people talking about like you know reducing reducing carbon emissions and that that's the solution. But what we really should be talking about is just making things cooler, like. Instead of just saying, well, let's cut down on our emissions, which will never happen, I said, and it's true, it's not, it's not happening in a meaningful enough way. We need to develop technologies that can, can reduce temperature. Like, it doesn't seem like rocket science conceptually. And just last week, I read for the first time an article of scientists saying, what we need to do is cool things down. And there's some, some concepts for how to do that. Um, so that made me happy. It made me say, okay, maybe, maybe people are freaking getting it. And um, these, these governments, these greedy, um, you know, self-interested, um, short-sighted people, and I'm in that group, we all are as humans, you know, um, we won't be able to curtail our behavior to the degree that is needed to fix this. Let's, let's look at technology and look at the problem differently to fix it. And I'm just heartened that, that that's a thing, that that's a thread that has, and I have to assume there's other scientists or people who've been working on it in ways that just aren't visible to me, but it finally bubbled up to the point where I'm seeing it. I'm like, ah, there, there it is. So um, I, I'm not hopeful yet, but I'm heartened. On that note, listeners, remember that while you're listening to the show, you can follow along with the things that we're mentioning here in real time. Just head over to thedigitallife.com. That's just one L in the digital life and go to the page for this episode. We've included links to pretty much everything mentioned by everybody, so it's a rich information resource to take advantage of while you're listening, or afterward if you're trying to remember something that you liked. You can find The Digital Life on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Player FM, and Google Play. And if you want to follow us outside of the show, you can follow me on Twitter at John Follett. That's J-O-N-F-O-L-L-E-T-T. And of course, the whole show is brought to you by Involution Studios, which you can check out at goinvo.com. That's G-O-I-N-V-O.com. Dirk? You can follow me on Twitter at dnemeyer. That's at D-K-N-E-M-E-Y-E-R. And thanks so much for listening. So that's it for episode 196 of The Digital Life. For Dirk Niemeyer, I'm John Follett, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>